Okay, today I'm coming to you from the Alamo in New Kensington, and I'm delighted to announce that I have a faithful and very attentive live audience here with me at this present time, and his name is Jim McClory, my faithful co-laborer in the Lord for lo these many years. Before we get started with today's message, we want those in our audience to be assured that our prayers are continuing to go throneward to God's throne for those who are suffering with the COVID virus, especially those in our own phalanx, and that their recovery would be quick and full and total, and that they will enjoy a future immunity because of that. We also want to remind you, or I do, that we have the messages that I'm teaching even now throughout this time of no gathering together. They are on the website, not only in the form of double speed and regular speed audio, but also video or DVD and they're in the form of written notes. The written notes that accompany these messages have, in many cases, they've been beefed up with a lot more scripture references so that it becomes a very profitable thing to take the messages that are written and study them, and just to follow the scripture references can be an extremely profitable way of categorizing important doctrines in your mind, in your heart, and your soul. So... I want to always point your attention to those. And today we have another opportunity. In increment 16, our 16th little contribution to a study of the epistle to the Hebrews in the form of a homily or a sermon. And today, again, is our 16th increment. Tasuto Kriton Genomenos Ton Angalon. One of the many marvels of the prologue of the Gospel of John is the declaration that the Word, who always eternally existed as God, and without whom nothing ever came into existence or became, himself became the eternal and eternal generated Son of God became he who always was and always is God, became. He became flesh. Though the exordium of Hebrews differs in literary form from the prologue of John's gospel, it nevertheless declares that the eternal son became something. He became much better than the angels. Later, in Hebrews 2.14, it says that he shared in blood and flesh, as did the children, that he was going to redeem, whom he came to save, and whom he came to present, along with himself, to God the Father. There's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 18 in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 13. 
And so we do have his participation with blood and flesh in that order in Hebrews 2.14, which correlates with his becoming flesh in John 1.14. The prologue of John and the exordium of Hebrews have some commonality. Now, in Hebrews 2.14, which is our immediate focus here, it says that he shared in blood and flesh as did the children, and that's an allusion to Isaiah 8.18, whom he came to save and to present along with himself to God the Father. He says, here I am with the children that you gave me, or here I am and the children that you gave me. Hebrews 2.14 goes on to say that his participation in blood and flesh was in order that through death, the death that was mentioned in Hebrews 2.9 and 10, he would render ineffectual or render powerless the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, hodiabolos or the slanderer. And that he would liberate those who had all been enslaved all their lives to the fear of death. That's Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So these same reasons for the word becoming flesh in John are made evident also. Later on in the fourth gospel, and in its narrative, and in Jesus' own speech. In John 12, 31, Jesus announced in the shadow of his death, now the ruler of this world is thrown out. Speaking of the second divine mission, Jesus, even closer to the hour of his death, said that the spirit of truth, it's called the spirit of truth in John, it's called the spirit of grace in Hebrews, the spirit of truth, when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning judgment. The world is dead wrong about what judgment is. The church, by and large, is wrong about what judgment is. They consider it to be something by which people are sent to an eternal blast furnace, they are, they are, their rendering of the word judgment is entirely wrong. It's for judgment that Jesus Christ came into this world, and it's the judgment of the cross whereby he became sin, and in him and by him sin was put away. Now that's judgment. So the Holy Spirit will come, and among other things, he will prove the world wrong concerning judgment, and then he goes on to say, because the prince ruler of this world has been judged. When the Spirit comes, he said, the prince of this world will have been judged. <clears throat> prince of this world being the devil, the God of this age, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of the Christ should shine into their hearts. So a conflation of John's gospel with Hebrews brings forward the powerful fact that the words incarnation and the son's participation 
in blood and flesh was so that by his death, there was to be a worldwide regime change involving the deposing of the archon of this world. In becoming better than the angels, Hebrews 1.4, the son bettered the devil, also known as the slanderer. He bettered him in battle. And he stripped this strong man, as he's called in Luke 11, of his main weapon, a weapon which he wielded with effect over human beings for centuries, in fact, for human history, since the fall of Adam. And for people's whole lives, they're subject to this fear of death. Who knows how many actions and thoughts and words have been performed in human history under the fear of death. The first epistle of John the Elder, who calls himself affectionately the old man, with affection to his audience, it's a letter called Alpha John. We call it 1 John. Well, that agrees with John's gospel and with Hebrews. For in 1 John 3, 8b, the old man, ha presbuteros, wrote, quote, the reason that the Son of God was manifested meaning manifested in the flesh, as 1 John 4.2 says, and as John 1.14 declares, along with Hebrews 2.14, once again, the reason that the Son of God was manifested was in order to destroy the works of the devil. One of the primary works of the devil is his wielding of the power of fear the fear of death specifically, his wielding of that power over his victims. The revelation of John, also known as John's apocalypse, powerfully depicts both the throwing down of the devil, who is also known as Satan and that old snake, the adversary he's called, and the accuser of the siblings. He's thrown down. And he is said to have been overcome through the blood of the lamb and through the word of the testimony of believers of whom it is said, quote, they did not cling to their lives in the face of death. They didn't cling to their lives in the face of death because they were liberated from the fear of death. The word of the testimony of the saints in Revelation finds a mate with the testimony of believers in Hebrews. That testimony is that Jesus is the Son of God. A confession, homologia, to which the Hebrew writer urges his readers to hold fast. The overcomers in Revelation overcame the devil precisely because they did not fear the death which the devil holds over the human race as leverage. Moreover, death, with a capital D, hathanatos in the Greek, is a personified enemy both in Revelation and in Paul's epistles. 
And his fellow rider, as he's depicted in Revelation 6, whose name is Hades, are both almost cinematically portrayed as being thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Why? Because both of their names, death and Hades, were not found in the book of life. They do not exist in the coming age. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, belongs to a fairly large segment of the PT's discourse, the pastor theologian's discourse, involving angelology, the study of angels, and more specifically, the sons acquired superiority over angels. A superiority which God the Son evidently had before his participation and blood and flesh, but more notably, it's a superiority that he attained having become a partaker of blood and flesh for the purpose of suffering and death. The purpose of suffering and death in turn was so that he, by the grace of God, now listen to this, so that he, by the grace of God, would taste death for everyone and that through death, he would render completely ineffective the slanderer, ton diabolon, whose main weapon was the fear of death. In the coming age, I like to call it future world, and steal it away from sci-fi renderings. In the future world, no one will be afflicted with this scourge the fear of death for death is the last enemy that will be brought under the feet of Jesus, the son of God. Psalm 110 one is alluded to not only several times in Hebrews, but also in first Corinthians 15, 25 to 27. And in verse 26 of first Corinthians 15 death personified is said to be the last enemy, the last enemy that the father says to the son I will place them under your feet. Now in this present evil age, Paul called this age that in Galatians 1.4, those who know Jesus in his resurrection and in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father as the victor over death, we who know him already have been liberated from this fear. Perfect love drives out all fear. And because of this, we are as he is in this world, without the fear of death. And because of this, we will have confidence in the day of evaluation, in the day of assessment, in the day of Christ Jesus, when the fire tests the actions of everyone. Now we know that to be absent from this mortal sheath, which we call a body, is to be at home with the Lord. We are not only free from the fear of death, we are free from the fear of what happens after death. Perhaps even more of a frightful thing to people who are ignorant of the word of God. We know that to be absent from or in exile from this mortal sheath 
is to be at home with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 5, 8. We walk by faith in 5, 7. And we see the life after departure from this body with the eyes of faith. We don't walk by sight, which only looks at the inanimate corpse. Jesus is already in future world. Jesus is already there in future world. For he already has a body of glory. Philippians 3.20. He's already animated with an incorruptible life by the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 15.44 compared with Hebrews 7.16 and with a reminiscence to 2 Corinthians 13.4. For though he was crucified in abject weakness, yet now he lives by the omnipotent power of God. And with that omnipotent power of God, he lives in an incorruptible body to make intercession for us, to save us to the uttermost. Hebrews 6.20, in fact, says that Jesus, our forerunner, has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Behind the curtain? In the holy of holies, in the heavenlies. Behind the curtain, in future world already. In future world, there is only life. Incorruptible life and no death. In future world, there is no fear. There is no sorrow, no grief, no pain. No disease. From future world, Jesus speaks to us and says, it's all right. He's not there just for himself. He has entered for us. Jesus, our forerunner, is called a forerunner on our behalf. He is there in anticipation of us being there too. After all, Jesus says, I am here with the children God has given me. Hebrews 2.13b, which is a quotation and an adaptation of Isaiah 8.18. Here again, both John's gospel and John's first epistle although in different formats and genres than Hebrews, tells of God giving Jesus children. In John 17, 2, even closer to his death, Jesus says to the Father, you gave me authority over all flesh. The one who became flesh was given authority over all flesh. You gave me authority over, over all flesh, so that I may give eternal life to all you have given me. And in 1 John 5, 20 and 21, at the close of 1 John, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, and the true one is the real one. 
that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life, the life of the coming age now. And then he says, and little children, guard yourselves from idols. Little children, I and the children God has given to me. We see Jesus, our forerunner. He has entered in behind the veil of the heavenly holy of holies after having passed through the heavens. He appears there for us as our great high priest, which will be fully developed in Hebrews, who has made the final sacrifice for sins and who has put away sin by the offering of himself. As Jesus is not in future world for himself, we are not in this world for ourselves either. We represent Jesus Christ. We are his ambassadors. We are urging, be reconciled to God. For he who knew no sin became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He appears beyond the veil as our great high priest. In fact, consider Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. I've kind of thrown together a translation of this. Reading five commentaries or so at the same time on Hebrews. Very excellent ones. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, my translation with expansion. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that means not just through the earthly middle and inner courts into the earthly tabernacles, holy of holies, but pass through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies. Then it says, Jesus, the son of God. Let's hold fast to the confession. For we don't have a high priest who is incapable of sympathy with our weaknesses, but one who was tested in every way as we are, but without sin. Therefore, let us go with outspokenness. That's our word for freedom of speech. Confident, bold freedom of speech to the throne of grace so that we may receive compassion and find grace in the form of, listen very carefully to this because this will give confidence to you in your prayers. We go to the throne of grace with outspokenness, boldness, that we may receive compassion and find grace in the form of well-timed and suitable help. What do you need? What do you need? When do you need it? We pray and we find compassion from God for ourselves and for others, for ourselves and for others, in the form of well-timed and suitable help. Our Lord is a very present help in time of trouble. Now, the reference to Jesus, the Son of God, in Hebrews 4.14, is powerful. There, the name of the Son of God is Jesus. In fact, and this is rather fascinating, Jesus, the Son of God, is actually the distillation of the confession 
mentioned so many times in Hebrews and at critical points in Hebrews, the confession to which the PT urges his readers to cling, to hold fast to. John's gospel also makes very much of this Jesus, the son of God. In fact, in John 20, 31, the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel of John, clarified his purpose in writing the fourth gospel. He said this, these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And so that believing you would have life in his name. And there it is, his name. The life-giving name of the life-giving spirit. Toward the end of John's gospel, the name of the Son of God is Jesus the Christ. And this is also important. At the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, it is the Son has inherited a name that is more excellent than the angels. Now, the name Jesus appears 15 times in Hebrews, referring to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Ten times, this name is simply Jesus. Once his name is mentioned in connection with something of or about him, the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 19. Once his name, connected to the title Messiah or the Christ, is connected with something about him. Again, the body of Christ in Hebrews 10.10. And speaking of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, that name-title combination appears three times in Hebrews. 10.10, already mentioned. 13.8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and throughout the age, and Hebrews 13.21. Once he's called our Lord Jesus, 13.20, where he's also referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep, whom God raised from the dead because of the blood of the everlasting covenant, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. Ten times, he is simply called Jesus. Hebrews 2 9, 3 1, 3 3, 4 14 in a passage I just read, 6 20 in a passage I just alluded to, 7 22, 8 6 in connection with the new covenant, 12 2 and 12 24. And 13.12. It is notable that the name Jesus isn't even mentioned in Hebrews until 2.9. And that in connection with the angels. And in context of an allusion to Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Read that on your own. 
because it's extraordinarily potent in Hebrews. The Septuagint version of that is Psalm 8, 5 through 7. In John's prologue, the name Jesus, for the word made flesh, and for the only eternally begotten Son of God, is not used until John 1.17, near the end of the prologue. There, Jesus is attached to the title Christ, and in mention, is mentioned both in continuity and in discontinuity with Moses. Hebrews will also speak quite eloquently of Jesus and Moses in Hebrews 3. Now, it's very important to understand that in many circles at this time, or at least in a few circles at the time of the writing of Hebrews, Moses was actually considered to be superior to angels. So again, the name Jesus isn't even dropped. The Hebrew writer is a name dropper in a very good sense. Many names are dropped in Hebrews 11, for example. But the name Jesus isn't even dropped by the PT in his homily until Hebrews 2.9. Now, oddly enough, or not, not so oddly, this is the verse from which we derive the title from our present series, We See Jesus. I wasn't really even aware of this until I refocused on this. So the first mention of the name Jesus is in our title verse. Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, hopefully with the 2020 vision of our hearts, vision that's adjusted by the Spirit of grace to see more clearly. In that verse, Jesus is the object of a verb performed by us. We see Jesus. For the first time, son, huio, in Hebrews 1-2, is given a name. Now, it's argued that the name Son itself is a name. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, my son, this is my son. And we'll look at this later, not today, but at sometime down the road, no doubt. We see Jesus, and for the first time, Son, in Hebrews 1-2, is given a name, and his name is Jesus. Now, according to Luke's gospel, he was formally named Jesus eight days after his birth on the occasion of his circumcision. Luke agrees with Matthew, writing in Luke 2-21, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. Luke also had recorded that occasion as Matthew had. But he identifies this angel as having a name. His name is Gabriel. Gabriel and Michael, mentioned in Jude, mentioned also in Daniel, are names of angels. So, in addition, Luke tells us that Gabriel spoke additional words about Jesus. He said, he will be great 
and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. The one who was named Jesus at his circumcision at the age of eight days was also prophesied by this angel, again, named Gabriel, Luke one nineteen, Luke one twenty six, Daniel 8.16, and Daniel 9.21, that he'd be called the Son of the Most High, highlighting a title that he would inherit future to his birth and the future to being given the name Jesus at his circumcision. It is to Jesus that God the Father would say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7. It is to Jesus that God the Father would say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, including death, as we know, your footstool, a footrest for your nail-scarred feet, as I said. Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1. It is to Jesus that the Father would say, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you more than your companions with the oil of joy. Psalm 45, 6 through 7. It is to this same Jesus that God the Father will say, you are a priest throughout the age, to be compared with Melchizedek. Psalm 110, 4, another key verse for Hebrews. Now from the perspective of the PT and us, The father has already said all these things to Jesus who was named this name because he would save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. So said Gabriel. So said the PT. So in Hebrews 1-2, he said, the son has made purification for sins and he has sat down in the highest height at the right hand of the eternal majesty it's up to a priest to make purification for sins but no priest until him has ever sat down afterwards having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs Jesus is the son of God in whom God has spoken with ultimacy and with eschatological finality. Jesus is the Son who has made purification for sins. Jesus is the Son who is the very radiance of the Father's glory, the stamp of the Father's substance, the Son whom the Father appointed heir of all things, the Son who has sustains all things, the Son by whom God made the ages, the Son who sustains all things, the Son 
who has sat down in the highest heights at the right hand of the eternal majesty, having become as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Dropping the name Jesus in Hebrews 2.9, we are compelled to read backwards all the reference to the unique son of God as having the name Jesus. It is extraordinary that the writer first mentions Jesus in connection with his death. And I'm moving to a close here, so stay attentive. I see you. And that in connection with the grace of God, and in connection with the experience of his death for all, It is also remarkable that the first mention of the name Jesus is in connection with his perfection through suffering and death. And that his perfection through suffering and death is linked with his solidarity with the children whom God gave to him with what are called many sons and daughters, note the word many, many sons and daughters being brought to glory. Hebrews 2.10a. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, he was made perfect through suffering. This is the prime, essential essence of what we're all about in Hebrews, and we'll be dealing with this throughout. It is significant that this first mention of the name Jesus is linked to the quotation of Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is Psalm 8, 5 through 7 in the Septuagint translation and in other Greek texts, in which God is said to remember man or remember anthropos or mankind and to care for the son of man. And in which it says that God has placed everything under his feet. Again, Psalm 8, 4 through 6, connect with Psalm 110.1, connect with Psalm 110.4, connect with Psalm 45, 5 through 7. Psalm 110.1 or 109.1 in the Greek text. And the Greek text is very important because this letter, this epistle, and this homily is a homily like other homilies that are proclaimed in the synagogues at the time of Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic wing of the body of Christ, Jewish Christians from the Hellenistic wing, like Stephen, the deacon who was murdered under the approving eyes of Saul of Tarsus. All of this is speaking of Jesus. Now, there are some impressive theories about the structure of Hebrews. Arranging this discourse into some kind of literary order is a daunting undertaking. But whatever the structure, I have to say that I see Jesus as the word around which the whole homily is built. 
The first mention of the name is integrally related to his death. I can't stress this enough. And not only to his death, but to his universally saving significance. His universally saving efficacy. Whether or not Paul the Apostle was an influencer of this second generation Jewish Christian writer. I say influencer, not writer. Because this writer is a second generation Jewish Christian who heard from those who heard from the Lord directly. So whether or not Paul the Apostle was an influencer of this second generation Jewish Christian writer, it seems that both Paul and this PT hold to the policy of knowing nothing if it is detached from Jesus Christ and him crucified. More than that, And fascinatingly, it may be that a man whose murder Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, approved was a stronger influencer of the writer of Hebrews, Stephen, may be that man. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We're grateful for yet another opportunity, even at this time when we are unable to meet, your plan goes on. Your grace goes on. I pray for Tetelestai Phalanx, for their families, their extended families, for those especially who have been, by your grace and by your perfect will, affected by this particular virus. For we're looking to you for healing for them for total recovery, and for something good to come out of this that was, is greater than had they not endured it. Only you can do this, the God of all providence, the God of all grace, the God of all truth. And Father, I thank you today for this opportunity. May this word go forth and truly inspire, elevate, strengthen, edify, Build up and release and restore all the hearers. May this good word of God find good ground, find root, take root, and spring up, bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen.